you're listening to a special edition of the Evoke Ag podcast recorded at Evoke Ag 2023 in Adelaide. I'm your host, Martin Cudahy. During this series, we'll bring you some fly-on-the-wall conversations from our cornerstone event, Evoke Ag, with some of the thought leaders and changemakers in attendance, as well as some of our favourite panel discussions and conversations. In this episode, we're exploring what it will take to satisfy the growing global appetite for protein. With an expected 2 billion extra people to feed by 2050, coupled with changing tastes and dietary preferences, there is a growing demand for more protein produced more sustainably and from a wider variety of sources. We'll be hearing from Professor Michelle Colgrave, the Deputy Director Impact, Agriculture and Food at the CSIRO, David Joe Hinky, the Vice President of the National Farmers Federation, Dr. Stephen Lepidge, CEO, Fight Food Waste, and Anthony Stewart, CEO, Thomas Foods International. Their conversation is facilitated by Dr. Aparna Venkatesh, the Collaborative Innovation Lead for the Bueller Group. All right, good afternoon. I'd like to invite the speakers to just introduce yourselves, like just a couple of minutes, and what this question means for you, maybe a little about your passion as well. Uh, maybe we can start with Professor Michelle. Please just make it Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> um, so um, I'm Michelle Colgrave. I work for CSIRO Agriculture and Food. I'm now the Deputy Director of Impact, as you heard, but um, uh, last year and the years before, I was looking after the Future Protein Mission. Um, so that's really about how we can um, feed the, the world's population, um, and as you probably heard earlier, not just about food, but about nutrition and thinking about the, the benefits there. So that's really my passion. It's about bringing those great bioactives that are out there in our foods um, for people's benefit. Thanks, Michelle. Over to you. Um, yeah, so I am a dryland farmer from a place called Murrawarra, which is uh, Western Victoria. Um, uh, for my, I guess, uh, wanting to speak up. I went to a meeting once and I ended up coming back as uh, the president of the VFF and now vice president of National Farmers. <laughs> um, but yeah, my passion is absolutely about um, having an informed discussion. A lot of times we talk about the uh, topic of protein or any other attributes of farming. It's, sometimes it's nice to talk about it in theory, but the realities of it, what it actually means to a, to a farmer and the farming organisations is completely different. And um, I guess I like to consider myself both a capitalist because I want to make money, but secondly, I'm a realist. So I want to make sure that what we're talking about is something that's actually tangible and people can do, not just theoretical. Thank you. Uh, Steve Lappage, I'm CEO of Fight Food Waste Limited. Uh, we have two teams. One's a cooperative research centre, so the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre based here in Adelaide or headquartered here in Adelaide. And the other one is Stop Food Waste Australia, which is the national lead agency in delivering the national food waste strategy. Um, why am I here? Uh, we have a number of projects uh, within the CRC which are around uh, dealing with waste streams from uh, protein, plant protein production, um, dealing with grade outs that can be turned into protein sources, uh, trimmings and so on. Um, but uh, I guess my main interest is making sure that as we push hard into alternative proteins, uh, we don't forget about some of those existing proteins out there, like wildlife, I've got a background in wildlife, uh, uh, that uh, we, we cull each year, but also um, you know, just making sure that the whole area is sustainable. Thank you. Over to you, Tony. Yeah, Tony Stewart, um, CEO of Thomas Foods. I've been with the business now a bit over eight and a half years, um, and I guess I'm here today to give a, a commercial 
perspective to the conversation. Um, our business has been on a real journey over the course of its sort of 30-year history from really trading livestock to start with, getting into primary processing in the last 10 years. We've uh, really been investing in uh, creating a, uh, an integrated downstream uh, value chain, so uh, moving closer to customer. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think... The conversation around how we uh, how we feed the world moving forward is a fascinating one. So I, I love being involved in this industry. Um, we've got a lot that we're working on at the moment, uh, which is really based on what's real and what's tangible and what actually works from a commercial point of view. But uh, it's a great challenge, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having a good conversation. Thank you, Tony. So as you can see, we've got a very diverse panel here of experts across the entire value chain. Um, we're really going to try to understand how we can leverage um, the alternative protein global chain versus the traditional um, uh, global supply for, for proteins and try to understand what, what are the constraints, what are the challenges here, what do we need to do to overcome it, um, what are the perceptions. Uh, perceptions from consumers as well. So there's a lot to get through. Um, I'd like to first ask Michelle some interesting questions. Um, let's talk a little bit about the CSIRO Future Protein Roadmap Report. So I know that CSIRO have been working on this um, quite a lot recently, and it's, it's been released, and you guys were involved in developing it. Um, I'd like to ask how the report will really uh, um, look into the journey to meeting the national and global protein requirements. Yeah, thank you. And look, we released the, the roadmap last year, I think it was around March. And, and what it is, is it's really um, some, some goals that we can see um, that where we can implement science and technology to accelerate our progress. So we know that um, we've, got, we've got an amazing opportunity, especially here in Australia, um, where we've got you know, a rich history of producing protein of all types. So that includes red meat, it includes our aquaculture, it includes our plant protein. And then we start to think about what are those novel protein production systems for the future. That complement, um, not alternative, of course, because I'll always say it's complementary um, to, to all of those sectors, because we need all of them and we need to deal with the food waste, which Steve will talk about, um, to really feed the population. So with the roadmap, we identified a $13 billion opportunity for Australia in that, and we could create 10,000 jobs if we are actually able to implement these science and technology solutions in this space. So the roadmap looked at um, what would be organic growth in this market, but it also looked at if we implement these, these science and technology solutions, if we partner in the right ways, we can accelerate the growth. And this is across all sectors. So we can think about opportunities in red meat where we, we look at um, adding value um, to some of the, the lesser valued cuts of meat at the moment and start to address things like um, supplements and nutraceutical markets and, and creating that value for our producers and all the way through the value chain. And then we can look at opportunities in aquaculture around creating a white flesh fish industry for Australia um, and reduce some of our reliance on imports, um, which with you know, disrupted supply chains is always a massive challenge. Um, and then we looked at plant protein and how we can start to implement both um, breeding targets to deliver the right nutrition um, and the right functionality for food manufacturers, as well as all the formulation, and then some of the opportunities around these um, novel technologies like fermentation um, that can deliver specific ingredients that can enhance the health of our populations, but it also make all those products better. 
So I'll, I'll probably pause there because otherwise I can talk all day. No, that, that, that sounds like a really comprehensive report. I, I did make my way through it. <laughs> it took me a while, but that's fantastic. And I just want to touch upon what you're talking about, part, the importance of partnerships. I, I completely agree with you there. I think, you know, these kind of reports to have access for various um, players in this industry would be super interesting for them to read such reports as well. But I'd like to ask you a bit more about how can academia and industry partners um, work together to really achieve much better outcomes um, in shaping and supporting such these kind of new sectors um, in food tech and agri-tech? So there's so many ways in which we need to work together, um, whether it be in the pre-competitive space around developing the talent um, pipeline that we need to support these industries, um, whether it be through value chain partnerships, which will bring together different parts of industry, whether it be SMEs alongside corporates and then working with those research partners. Um, it's about bringing research partners together. So we stop duplicating some of the research that we're undertaking and we're actually um, bringing those complementary skills skill sets that exist across the various universities and CSIRO and other, um, along with the skill sets that exist in industry and making sure that it's, it's real, um, it can be implemented in industry setting and that it's, that it's practical because if we don't actually think about, you know, what incentivizes the farmer to grow that crop um, over another and, you know, the balance between, say, yield and quality and, and other attributes. So I think we just have to all come together and find those complementary skill sets. Great. Speaking of uh, farmers, I think that's a wonderful leeway into talking to David. Um, I would, I'd love to know more about what you think is the importance of traditional protein sources and uh, in terms of the experience, the innovation, what are the challenges and the shortcomings in terms of the existing market? You can find out more about any of our conversations on our website, evokeag.com. Make sure to join us in Brisbane for Australia's premier agri-food innovation event, EvokeAg, presented by AgriFutures Australia on February 18 and 19, 2025. Well... Starters, um, we talk about alternative protein. Uh, a lot of my mates think that's when you don't get the beef dish at the wedding and you get the other. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, we've been growing pro, uh, pulses on our farm for ages, and like we grow lentils would be our number one crop. Yeah. Now, not because I'm a believer that uh, that's the only thing you should be growing. It's because that's the most profitable crop that we can grow on our property, as well as it giving benefit to our rotation. Mm. And we talk about the opportunities with protein itself. Um, for me, it's always about I'm producing either starch or protein. Those are my two options as a farmer, and we have a livestock component to our farm as well as um, the cropping component. And uh, the reality is my, my biggest concern is how much rainfall I get and what I can use with that rainfall. And with the previous discussion around carbon and, and these other pressures that I've got on my, my decision making matrix, I've got to be able to try to balance my risk pro profile as well as then come up with, well, what's the best outcome for my business? Because my sustainable matrix is, will my bank lend me money? And can I give my farm to the next generation? Mm. Now, not necessarily in those two orders, but I'm, once again, not a, not a, a socialist or an idealist in a lot of these areas. It's, it's the reality is, um, 
as Michelle said, we've got to make sure that it works for everybody up and down the supply chain. And sometimes in this conversation, I think that we haven't necessarily uh, brought the farmer along in this conversation and said, well, what is the best component of it? And as somebody who sits on the, the National Farmers Federation, we, we've got an aspiration that the net farm output of Australian farms, farms should get up to $100 billion. And as part of that, we do talk about how we manage um, food waste, how do we make sure that we're most efficient. Yep. But most of all, um, how do we also demonstrate and have a conversation with consumers mm. and also the wider public on how and what we do? Yep. And if there is um, pressures or the need for us to change our practices, that, that we have an open dialogue of not only what we are doing but then also have the conversation around what that means because yep. everything you do on farming is a compromise. Absolutely. Th thank you for that perspective. I mean, you're also, ex as, as a farmer, you're exposed to various different types of crops. You're able to see which ones has, has the highest demand uh, in our industry at the moment. I'd like to understand from you, in, in, in your opinion, um, what kind of novel pulses do you feel would have the most impact on consumers and on sustainable value chains? Uh, what would be the ideal plant for consumption, for example? Uh, one that's worth a lot. <laughs> and yields and I don't have to spray. <laughs> Now, at the moment, the reality is um, there's, there's demand for things like faba beans. And anyone who's grown a faba bean in their life, uh, you will know that that's uh, a challenge in itself. But with an emerging industry, I reckon there's a huge opportunity both genetically and genomically of what we want to build and have the architecture of that plant. So the short answer is there's no ideal plant at the moment. Mm. There's nothing that is a broad, broad fix for... Um, uh, what the consumer that ingredient demand actually is, and in our, well, in my aspect especially, I think that ingredient supplement market is is the real discussion and how to make sure that we are developing the right um, breeding and research into those areas that are non-traditional in in the um, in the current breeding system. Right. We've got an opportunity to actually look at the science, look at the technologies that we've currently got, and go, well, what what do we actually need to do? A, a replacement or a supplement. And B, what is, what's the actual, what are we trying to do to, to achieve here? Yeah. For me, it's not offsetting or changing what we're current farming system. It's always um, ensuring that it's uh, enhancing it. And um, I know in our rotation, we probably can't fit any more pulses into our rotation because quite simply, we offset then um, our ability to manage disease and, and weeds. So um, for us, I reckon that there's, there's a huge scope there, but we have to understand what we want. Right. You mentioned earlier that you feel that uh, farmers have not really been part of the conversation uh, when we're talking about these areas. So what would be your concerns as a farmer and w w what, do you, what does the industry really need to do to make it more attractive to farmers? <laughs> so once again, I might be talking about money a little bit too much. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but uh, when I'm buying machinery or when my bank lends me money, I've got to, I've got to be able to pay it back. So my farm runs on making sure that, once again, I'm sustainable, I can do it repetitively, but then also that uh, I'm getting good market signals. And mm. one year it might be canola, the next year it might be wheat. That's my most um, profitable crop, but that's why we have to have a diverse portfolio. And I just see this as another um, tool or another component of being that having a diverse portfolio. But alongside that, it's how we run our farming systems and how we interact with our natural environment. So getting recognised for the biodiversity aspects that we run on our businesses is really important and that should never be lost in that conversation. But when we talk about um, an emerging market and we talk about the risk that's behind that, uh, I think that farmers haven't necessarily been approached or had the discussion around, well, what, where do you fit into the, um, the novelty trait? Where, where can this fit into 
your business structure because at the end of the day, quite frankly, it can be the most whiz-bang thing that you've got out there. And it looks super cool in a lab, but if I'm going to be sitting at home trying to grow it in uh, suboptimal conditions that have got heat stress and, and frost shocks coming through at me and I've got to have uh, a really high management base to uh, achieve an outcome versus mm. a plant that I know that is a true performer in all conditions, um, I'm sorry, uh, I've, I've got to go the easier option because my risk versus reward yep. at the moment isn't there. Absolutely, and that completely makes sense. Thank you. If I could move a little bit now more from um, that type of farming to uh, livestock farming, uh, let's talk a little bit about meat and traditional meat because this is... This is a completely, I mean, it's an emerging um, space and there's a lot of talk between will alternative proteins really be able to replace or, I, I wouldn't say replace, more of be an alternate to um, consuming traditional meat. So I'd love to talk to you, Tony, next on the rationale behind uh, TFI. Uh, it's, you, know, you are one of Australia's largest meat processing companies. Um, and in terms of how you're investing in a commercial scale alternative protein facility, what are your risk mitigations here? And um, how are you looking? You're clearly diversifying um, your portfolio. So I'm curious as to why you did that. Comes back to customer, really. Mm -hmm. It's a simple answer. So, uh, like DJ said, you know, we're we're in a business to uh, succeed and, and make money at the end of the day, make a return on our capital. So, yes, you know, as I said in the introduction, we started off uh, trading livestock. We moved into primary processing. We are fundamentally, at our heart and core, a, a red meat production group. Um, but we took a view. 15 years ago and we've really been executing that heavily in the last 10 years to uh, to go into our markets uh, and deal directly with customer and that is really what sort of drives most of our thinking around you know what we do where we invest um, is starting to listen to what's happening at a customer level so I'm not an expert in plant-based proteins at all or products um, by any stretch of the imagination but we have a distribution platform, we have a customer base that we've built over the last 20, 25 years that has a need and has demand for different products. So whilst we built that distribution model to, to largely support that core Australian footprint red meat processing business that we've got, we actually source products from all sorts of different uh, protein sources, different countries, that meet a customer requirement at the end of the day. Um, so we've been working with companies who are producing plant-based products now for five, six years in Europe, in the US, mm -hmm. uh, and here in Australia. Uh, I just see it as a natural progression to what we do, and it's meeting a, a customer need and a customer requirement. It fits our business model of being, you know, if it's Australian sourced, it's high quality, uh, it's trustworthy, yep. uh, it kind of fits our brand. Um, and that's the way we look at it. Great. Thank you. And how do you think corporates like yourself can really support the market growth here? And what do you think would be the opportunities for traditional and um, alternative protein suppliers, if you had to pick a few? Look, I think it just comes back to this concept of partnership. Um, there is mm -hmm. no sort of silver bullet here. You've got, um, you've got farmers, you've got um, companies who are developing technology and products uh, in this space and are putting a lot of time and energy and R&D into uh, coming up with better product because that's ultimately what it's got to be, right? It, it's got to be a high-quality, 
good product for the consumer um, with a, a price that kind of works mm. relative to uh, other options out there. Um, so where we fit in, you know, we, we have expertise really in terms of being able to access market and uh, get that product to customers. So the, um, I guess the project that we've entered into here in South Australia is a, a, it's a consortium. Yep. We're working with three other companies. Um, we sit at the, the back end. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we'll, we'll be actually converting uh, that protein into a, uh, a, a customer-ready product that just goes in and goes out with uh, everything else that we do. Mm. Um, so for me, it is just it's, it's, it's a matter of identifying those, um, uh, those other players that uh, we can bring some value to, they can bring some value to the equation, and it actually works commercially. Right. You mentioned consumers. Uh, I think that's a super important aspect of this um, entire space. And I'm curious to just hear your thoughts on the products in the market at the moment, the plant-based meat products in the market. There's always going to be that comparison to the taste of traditional meat. Um, do you think we're quite close to uh, really mimicking uh, in terms of the products you've tasted so far? Do you, do you like what you've tasted so far? Do you think it's sometime somewhat closer to meat? Or do you think it should be in a category on its own? Like we shouldn't be comparing it to meat. I think yeah, you've just hit it on the head. I think it's got to be a category on its own. Mm. Uh, the trend to this point has been to try and replicate as much as possible the look and the feel and mm. uh, the taste. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it, it's not the same. Um, and uh, there, are some, there are some really good products out there, but it's, it's evolving and it's developing. Um, and I, as I said, I, I just don't see that there's, there's no competition here. Yep. It's it's a, it's complementary. Uh, it's a, it's a different offering, and uh, it really comes back to just making sure that uh, the product itself is uh, is of a high quality and uh, and eats well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. That's all about this perception from consumers that it's a it's a competition to traditional meat. It shouldn't be the case, right? Absolutely. Um, and you know, in terms of the technologies that are out there, it's it's so true that we're really seeing um, a, a wave of new technologies coming in to improve the texture, the taste of these kind of products, be it um, in in precision fermentation, be it for plant-based meat products. So maybe I'm, I, I come back to Michelle for for a minute there to to talk about the the new innovations out there. Uh, if you could take us through an overview of the new technologies uh, that are present, and what are you most um, excited about that could have the biggest impact in terms of the technologies? So, I mean, there's a lot of technology that, that we've just repurposed for this market, you know, whether it be things like um, extrusion is obviously one of those key technologies to deliver um, some of the texture. There's um, new fractionation methods, um, dry fractionation, air classification, whatever you want to, you know, put the, the name on um, that allows us to extract. And then I think that'll come to Steve uh, to talk a little bit of yeah. more about the, um, the, the side streams. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, there's fermentation and that's like the oldest Tech, biotechnological process known to mankind, really. Yep. So we've actually repurposed it, and now we're using genetic engineering combined with fermentation to deliver these ingredients. Mm. Um, but I think as we look to the future, how we implement things like artificial intelligence to make selections that make sense. But that only works if we have a conversation between farmers mm. and food manufacturers because we need to, we can say, well, this is the ideal functionality that the food manufacturer needs but if that functionality comes at the compromise of um, pest resistance or if a nutritional aspect um, comes at a compromise of yield, 
then that's that's where we have that nexus. So we will be able to implement these sort of selection um, technologies and use the data that um, comes out of, say, extrusion or other technologies, um, digital twins of fermenters that allow us to to really make changes on the fly and improve the, the production capacity and efficiency of these processes, mm. but only if the humans are also having a conversation around it. Yeah. But I, I want to throw it to Steve to talk a little bit. Yes, Steve, that's over to you. Um, maybe I can, I can d d direct that question a bit more. How, how, do, you, how do you see um, utilizing uh, existing protein resources, um, such as, you know, called uh, wildlife before producing more a animal protein, should the opportunities arise to bring it up? Yeah, I guess our approach is, um, you know, we're very supportive of uh, developing alternative protein sources, but let's take a practical and a circular look at what's already out there as mm. well. And as we push into um, uh, plant protein, pulse protein, um, you know, let's look at the waste streams that are created from some of these production methods. Yep. Um, if we look at pulse production uh, or pulse protein, it's about 75% starch and fibre and also large amounts of water that are used. Mm -hmm. So let, let's take a, a, you know, an LCA approach, um, life cycle analysis approach, to make sure we are comparing apples with apples when we talk about you know, the environmental impact of these different food types and so on. So um, you know, we have a number of projects uh, in the Fight Food Waste CRC uh, around dry fractionation, uh, around you know, wet extraction techniques with uh, leaf protein, um, uh, around using graded out uh, pulses, um, peas in particular, mm. um, and to make sure that we've got alternative value chains for, you know, in the case of a frost or something like that, we can get this product into a valuable you know, uh, end consumer market, not just feeding it to animals. Yep. Nothing wrong with feeding it to animals. That still counts towards the target of having food waste in Australia, but we're always trying to create more value mm. out of that product for the, for the farmer, yep. for, the, for the food manufacturer. So, yeah, it's just taking a more holistic look. Yep. Um, I did mention the wildlife bit, and uh, mm. that, that is my passion, uh, or former passion in a way. Yep. Uh, and that's because, you know, there's major ecological problems which are really not talked about in Australia with a huge amount of protein dumped on the ground, which basically feeds uh, predator populations and sustains them that then take out wildlife. Um, mm. You know, kangaroo protein is amazing lean protein that we could be using to fill the future protein gap that we have. Yeah. Fifty, you know, fifty-six percent food gap between now and twenty fifty. Let's look at the some of the existing sources. Mm. That's great. Now, I think uh, trying to understand how we can look at all these different uh, side streams and really um, utilizing them in a, in a sustainable way is so important because, I mean, I, I, I come from a company that builds really large um, industrial-scale plants, and a lot of our customers do start to wonder, what, what do they do with the side stream that's generated from these large processes, right? And one of them, as you already mentioned, is starch, 75%. Um, of waste streams are from starch. That's huge. So maybe if you could give us a bit more of an insight on how are we really utilizing starch? We're out of time. So you could answer well. that question as part of the Q&A session, if that works for you, Steve. That would be fabulous. And then we might go to the crowd for a couple of questions. Right. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd just make a comment that we're still an importer of many types of starch. Um, Potato starch is one area where we import 60,000 tonnes. We've got 120,000 tonnes of graded out potatoes in this state alone. You know, we need to develop a start potato starch production plant here in, in Australia. So, yeah, it's just making sure that as you build new facilities, and I know TFI is going into this, yeah. you're thinking about the waste products from the very start and making sure you're utilising them to you know, the best financial possibility um, for the company. Okay, thank you.
Fabulous. Let's launch in, literally. If you haven't seen it before, this is our Q&A microphone, which is a nice little cube that I'm going to throw at whoever puts their hand up. So Rock's got one. up here at the side, and I won't throw it that far because I don't play <laughs> AFL. Oh, go on so. and catch yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here you go, David. Hi. There's a question for Michelle and DJ. Um, probably not expected. What I'm interested in, though, is... We talk about proteins collective, you know, collectively, but we know that we're really talking about individual proteins at the end of the day. So what I'm interested in is that, and I remember reading the report, you know, we talked about this protein potentially raised it. But I think it'd be interesting to get an insight into how you go about selecting which protein you're going to focus on and what's the pathway to get it from, once you've identified that protein in the future, to get it to DJ. And then DJ, from your perspective, what will it take for you to look at that crop and that protein and adopt it on your farm? Yeah, um, it's a really good question and it's, and it's about the conversation, right? Um, so if we're talking about plant protein, because I think that's where you're going with, um, with the question um, involving DJ, um, we, can, we can certainly look at them from a, a nutritional standpoint and we can say, well, it's got the right of essential amino acids, it's got these specific proteins that deliver a gelling characteristic or whatever it is. Um, we can then um, we can use the latest technologies like omics te technologies to track and trace those proteins and understand the impact of say drought on on the expression of those proteins or we can look across the genetic diversity that exists within any individual crop and say well if you select this particular line it'll have higher levels of that functionality that we're after um, but then we also need to understand well if we have that variety um, will it actually grow in the field and will it um, be uh, more or less tolerant to whatever abiotic or biotic stresses there are so there's got to be a conversation around that and it may be that we can um, actually use a blend of different varieties that's more practical um, than, than going after one specific variety. And maybe I'll throw to you now, DJ. Well, it's simple is uh, to get that critical mass, you've either got to have uh, agronomic or a benefit for the whole farming system or it's just going to be pure cash. And um, the, the latter is not going to be the solution because that ebbs and flows too much in any industry. We've seen that in other novelty crops that have come through the system. But, um, yeah, I think that, that balance between both understanding what you're wanting to try to achieve for the protein extraction and making sure that that's fit for purpose because the last thing I want to do is have a warehouse of stuff that nobody wants. And then secondly, it's just the ease of that fits into my system. If I've got to buy a different harvesting equipment, different sowing equipment, different spraying equipment, sorry, it's got to fit into my system because quite frankly, the investment that I'm currently making in my system is sunk cost and um, I want to try to make it sweat as hard as I can. Uh, yeah, hi, um, my name is Fleur and I have, I guess, a... a I'm a, I'm a farmer, I um, am also on an industry body and I'm also a public servant in the Department of Agriculture. So I look at this through three different kind of lenses and I guess my question about the realising the opportunity in the protein strategy, we all have a part to play across the sector. I'm interested about your views about what the government role is in, in realising the opportunity here, probably outside of an R&D space, but more likely from a policy and implementation space, what role can government play? I might start and say that, um, like, as we look to novel foods, for instance, we um, we obviously have to uh, go through regulation, deregulation of, of those. Um, we have to understand the food safety and everything else. 
Um, one of the challenges is that we're not just producing food for Australia, we're producing food for the world, um, and not, maybe not the whole world, but, but certainly regions of it. Um, so as we think about harmonisation of food standards um, and we think about how we can get things through at, um, at a cadence that is um, ensuring safety of new foods, but at the same time not hindering our startups or our companies that are looking to innovate in this space. So I think there's, there's certainly a role to be, play, to be played there, but also in supporting infrastructure, whether it be through, um, you know, NRFs could likely to look at things like um, supporting industry to scale. And that's going to be a really critical part because that's not necessarily the R&D, um, but hopefully that'll trigger investments in R&D to improve processes and so on. But uh, maybe anyone else wants to comment further? I, I was just going to say the infrastructure bit as well. And you for, uh, referred to the NRF for anyone not aware. That's the National Reconstruction Fund, mm. uh, where the guidelines are still being settled at the moment. Um, certainly we'll be looking at that for some of the uh, facilities that... Um, uh, I think are needed in this country and certainly uh, facilities around uh, waste transformation are really needed. So when you do have a, a disease or you know, a, a frost or something like that, you're not losing a whole crop um, for zero value. Uh, unless I'm missing something, in this case I apologise, English is not my first language. I am surprised that 30 minutes about alternative protein does not refer to the word insect in a, in a word. Uh, <laughs> talk, Michelle, right? We expected this. Uh, can you refer to this and just to focus the, uh, your answer, may I remind all of us that 78% of the protein uh, collected, harvested on earth go to feed animals and uh, chicken do not need to be educated about consuming uh, worms? <laughs> Thank you. No, it's a very good, and look, we, we, we could spend the whole day talking and insects would certainly come up if we had that conversation. Um, but, you know, insects are remarkable um, bioconverters of, of, of other side streams and streams into, um, into high-value protein, and so it certainly can play a role. Um, and this is not just about feeding our humans, but it's about not only feeding your chickens, but maybe even your pets, um, because they're, they're also, my, my cat loves catching crickets, so, you know, there's, there's certainly a role for insects as bioconverters, but maybe someone else like Dad. Yeah, I mean, we have projects, and I probably shouldn't mention companies, because I know there's other companies in the audience, but we do a lot with GoTerra, and that's really looking at um, the regular, uh, regulatory field, which is uh, an impediment at the moment to the growth of that industry and, and further capital investment in Australia because the larger markets out there are inaccessible in terms of the, the, the beef market and, and sheep markets and so on, the ruminant market, because of regulation in this space. And if that's something we can address as a CRC for all insect protein producers, then I think that's a great outcome. You know, I spend the back half of my season killing a heap of pea cowpea aphid, red-legged earth mites, if you want to come and grab some. <laughs> That's fabulous. We've got just over two minutes left, so we do have time for another question or two if anyone wants to be putting their hands up. Sure. Uh, regarding the customer view of the product, do you see the customer looking at the taste or where, where the plant protein comes from? Or what, what is the reaction from the customers? Would you like to take that too? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll have a go at that one. I, I think first and foremost, it's the actual, the product itself. It's, it's the taste, it's the look, it's the, it's, it's the feel of it. Um, and um, 
you know, I think one of the challenges that's there at the moment is kind of this whole value equation around kind of what's that eating experience like versus what's the, the price on the shelf. Information's important as well. Um, so um, understanding kind of what you're consuming and where it comes from uh, is absolutely part of that value proposition. Um, and it's something that I think Australia is really well positioned uh, to, you know, be a leader in that regard, but we've got to get the product right first and we've got to get scale. So coming back to something we touched on a bit earlier, you know, one role that government can assist is just help helping with getting that scale and the commercialisation kind of in, in line with what, what's happening and emerging as far as consumer preferences and, and requirements are. Um, that makes a big difference as well because if you've got the right product, it's appropriately priced for what it is um, and the providence, if you like, around where it's come from, how it's been grown and how it's got to the consumer, they're all important at the end of the day for the sustainability of the model overall. Yeah, if we don't get to the right eating experience, let's face it, you're not going to go back and repurchase the product. Um, you're not going to purchase it in the first place if it costs too much. So if we don't get those right, we're, we're dead in the water. Mm. Um, but I think once we go beyond that, we've got to consider the nutrition. So it's not just about how much protein are you eating, how many micronutrients are in that. Um, and, you know, by processing by its nature is not bad. Um, formulation is the killer. So if you don't get the formulation right and you don't deliver the right nutritional content into that, then that's going to be the, the next big challenge for some of this industry. So, And it's also about having diversity on your plate. We don't just eat one thing, um, or hopefully we don't. My kids would love to eat chicken nuggets every day if they <laughs> got the choice. But, but, you know, it's about having that diversity. And so um, ensuring you've got nutrition is there. So I'd like to just remind everyone of that. But no. as an avid... Um Consumer on a Saturday morning at Bunnings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh, the experience can be just as much of the uh, the the smell and the the uh, the uh, the community than the actual taste. Uh, I think we've all had Bunnings regret every so often. But <laughs> for for me, um, is that after the fourth or the fifth? <laughs> usually the sixth. But um, <laughs> the the reality is there's a price point in everything in this conversation, and this isn't for everybody. Um, there's going to be some markets this doesn't fit in. And it, we talked about cost of living in the last panel. That's, that's a real thing too. That's a real aspect. So yeah. the affordability of the technology and how we can actually make that um, fit over the whole community, noting that um, protein isn't protein. But if we're, we're talking about what this actually means to the community, there's actually a whole segment here that we've got to realise um, that this is for and other people that it may not be for. Perfect. Thank you. We're going to wrap it up there because we've got a flashing light at the front here that you can't see, thankfully. <laughs> so thanks. Let's put our hands together for our fabulous panel and a partner. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more fascinating interviews with speakers, presenters and innovators from the Evoke Ag 2023 event on our website, evokeag.com or look for the podcast on your favourite podcast app.